Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I think it's a little bizarre that nursery walls are often painted with scenes from Noah's Ark. I mean, when you consider the foundation, the theological foundation of the story, I mean, it's a little strange. I mean, and it's always so happy and cheerful, you know? I mean, it's a fairly small, like, tugboat-looking thing, and um, and there's Noah, and he's looking a little rotund, and he's there, and he's with a giraffe and an elephant, and they're all smiling, and there's no unpleasant creatures, you know, there are no skunks, and there's no dung beetles and things like that, just sort of happy, big animals, and everybody is having a really good time. And I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad. But at the same time, I'm wondering if anybody who painted such a thing ever read, like, the Bible. Um, did they read the account, you know, of the fury of heaven that, like, consigns a whole lot of people and animals to a watery annihilation? I'm just curious. Um, well, no matter if they read it or not, it is one of the oldest stories that we have as human beings. It's one of the oldest recorded stories that many cultures, in fact, have in one way or another. And some people say, especially skeptics regarding that cataclysmic event, uh, will say, well, of course ancient cultures wrote about flooding because flooding was a common problem in the ancient world just as it is today. And there's truth to that, but it's more complicated than that because there are so many retellings of this story that involves several key components, like there was a righteous man and his family that the heavens called out to in order to save him and his family from a very large catastrophe. And then that same man was to gather up different creatures and animals to preserve their life from the judgment of the heavens, and that that judgment of the heavens wouldn't last forever, only a given period of time, and then uh, that portion of the world would be repopulated. I mean, th- that's interesting to me, that that this story of an ancient vessel and an ancient family and lots of animals uh, were to be preserved um, comes to us from a variety of sources and a variety of religious backgrounds. And yet, Genesis 9 is our sacred story. It's our retelling of that voluminous deluge. And I want to consider with you three themes from this particular passage that I hope will help us to understand what the author is really getting at and what he wants us to see. And the first theme that we have to note, even though it's mostly past tense from our text's perspective, the first theme is the storm. We have to deal with the storm. We can't just bypass the storm. And we do land in our lectionary rather late in the flood epic, after the fearsome bits are wrapped up, you know, after the wooden Titanic finds a resting place, not in an iceberg, but on the top of a mountain. Well, and to sum up the story, you know, the world had devolved into a, into hell in so many ways that people became as bad as they could be. Like total depravity went all the way. And God put up with it for a while, but he warned the people of Noah's generation about 120 years before it happened. He's like, my spirit is not going to strive with you forever. I give you 120 years. 
Well, they didn't pay attention to the warning signs. Why? Because neither do you and neither do I, right? We, we only typically learn after we've made the mistake. Well, they're heading into a very massive and watery uh, consequence for their mistakes. And, um, and God, who creates all things, is about to unmake almost all things and preserve just a minority of people and animals. And so today's text uh, is, is looking back at the flood. The water has receded. And it um, perceives the flood as a great judgment from heaven. It's not just a natural accident that the Middle East received this, this um, punitive judgment. It was, in fact, coming um, from heaven, triggered by human misdeeds and misbehavior for a long, long time. And so it's sort of a, a tale of anti-creation, if you will, of great judgment against the created order. And I have to say, though, that this point is mostly contextual, but it's an important one to make about the storm. It's an unavoidable subject in the Bible. The storm is an unavoidable subject in the Bible, and it is absolutely key to God's nature. We know that in the law itself, also in the Psalms, we hear the refrain time and time again that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Totally true. And at the same time, that verse is connected to these words, and yet he will not acquit the guilty. So he's abounding in steadfast love, and yet he doesn't overlook the crassness of our anti-human and anti-God sentiments. He doesn't turn a blind eye. Instead, he stares right at them and sees them with perfect clarity. Uh, And this is the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is a God of justice, is a God uh, who does from time to time express wrath, and sometimes on a grander scale than we are comfortable with. But This is the God of Job's whirlwind. It is the God of Sinai's firestorm. It is the God of Elijah's blast wave, not a still small voice. The Hebrew is not still small voice for what it's worth. Um, This is the God who is Pharaoh's conqueror. This is the God who is Jezebel's executioner. Like, this is the God of the Bible. Even Jesus is displayed as having rage, not just in that little temple cleansing episode, but also in the book of Revelation, In Revelation chapter 6, the author writes of the wrath of the Lamb. Now, there's an image. You know, friends, we accept the Jesus who is dressed in white. Do we have the courage to accept the Jesus who is dressed in red? The God of storms. So that's the first word, the storm. Then there's the second word, uh, and it's more pertinent to our text today, and it's the oath. God makes an oath, a big oath. This is from verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, This is a covenant, and a covenant is a treaty, it's a contract, it's a legal oath, it's a binding agreement. And I want you to notice just three things about this covenant that God makes. First, it's comprehensive. God is not just making a covenant with Israel, or with one family, or with just men, or just women, or men and women. No, instead, he is making a covenant with men, women, and all the animals. So it's a very comprehensive covenant, ranging from... You know, your great, great, great grandmother to 
antelopes, right? Everything is included in this covenant. And that's unusual because in the Old Testament, covenants are almost always established with just one or several human beings, but never with all of creation. And yet here, that's what's being displayed. It's a comprehensive covenant. It's also a future-oriented covenant. He's not saying this is going to be true until Noah dies. And then I'm I have a different plan. Instead, he says, no, it's for you and for your offspring after you. The future will roll on, in other words, uninterrupted by a grand cataclysm of this kind. Uh, One of the first novels that I ever read, and I think I was 13 or 14 at the time, was Stephen King's The Stand, the unabridged version. You know, that's the bigger one. And uh, that's what unabridged means. And, and, you know, just so you know. And uh, and, and it it was about kind of a near-apocalyptic event. It was Stephen King's tale of, to quote him, dark Christianity. And uh, and most of the human race, 99.9% of the human race, was wiped out due to a plague. They just remade the book as a miniseries. It wasn't very good, but the thought was, at least from some people that I had spoken to early on in the COVID disaster, Ethan, do you think this is going to end up anywhere like any, anything like the stand? And I said, well, I hope not. But more than I hope not, the answer is no. And the answer is no because of this covenant, actually, because God said it wouldn't happen. He said, look, I'm not going to engage in the same cataclysmic way with the human race anymore. It happened once. This act of anti-creation happened once. But now things will continue to roll on. The oath remains future-oriented. Also, this oath is unconditional. It does not say if your offspring prove themselves to be worthy. It doesn't say that if you show slow improvement over time. Instead, this is a dangerous and risky covenant, an unconditional covenant. What if human beings remake hell again? What if they invent A-bombs or apartheid? Covenant stands, whether we improve or whether we don't. What does cause God to make this unconditional gamble on people like us? Because it's not like we learned our lesson after the flood. Do you remember what happens as soon as the water starts to recede? God makes this very dark comment about the occupants of the big boat. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's the very same thing he said before he flooded. Right? And so it's not like we changed a whole lot on our boat ride. In fact, after Noah departs the wooden Titanic, he has a great idea to start a brewing business. He does. So he starts a brewery, and then he gets a little trashed, and things get weird with one of his kids, whom he curses. And let's just say it's all downhill again from there. Um, The world was washed in the flood, but the heart was not. Now, because of this, because of our unseemly nature that carried on through the flood, God could have finished the flood project, made it a complete act of anti-creation, pushed that ark down with his hand into the water and drowned a lot of us. But he didn't. There was a remnant preserved by grace. You see, the Bible is not nihilistic. It is not chock full of anti-human sentiment. In fact, God has made the oath that says, I will not interrupt Uh, the typical patterns of life and death in the world. Not like this, not again. But why did God make this risky oath that I'm going to carry on unconditionally the patterns of the world? Well, because of the first oath he ever made. The first oath he ever made was not to a man or to a woman, but to a serpent. He promised that someday some descendant of that woman would split open the skull 
of that deceiving viper. And he preserves Noah's family so that he can make his first vow come to pass. And it did. Not in a flood, not in the rain, but on a hill on another sunny day. And so we have an oath that is comprehensive, future-oriented, and unconditional. And we have a token. That's the last theme. So we have the storm, the oath, and the token. Uh, When God makes an oath to people, he usually gives a visible, tangible sign of it. That's just his pattern. This is from verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So when God makes an oath, He often makes it tangible for us so that we'll have some memory of that oath. He does that with Adam by giving him a garden, does that with Abraham by giving him the right of circumcision, does that with Moses by giving him the tablets of the law, does that with David by giving him a throne, does that through Jesus in the new covenant by giving us the meal of bread and wine, right? He just assigns certain signs to certain covenants, and this covenant is no exception. He places a rainbow in the sky. Many things I could say about this, but here are three very briefly. Notice the color, or rather the spectrum of color. The rainbow displays all the colors that make up creation, not just ocean blue. It's a reminder that God is going to restore all things. Notice the place of the rainbow. It's the sky that is something that is public, something that everybody can see, uh, something that looks like it's a thousand miles long. Uh, And... And so it's not a privatized sign, something intimate like circumcision became. Instead, this is something displayed openly for all of humanity to witness. And also notice where it hangs. It hangs in the place where the judgment came from, where the rain came from. And now that judgment, that rain is being replaced by something that, according to God's own words, contradicts it. The rainbow hangs there. Also notice the shape. The shape of it. It's called a bow. Now, it means rainbow in this context, but it's interesting that it's the same Hebrew word that's used for the bow that is uh, utilized in war, in warfare, the bow from which you shoot an arrow. Uh, And it's fascinating that uh, many commentators note this, and it's expressed maybe most beautifully in uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, which I highly recommend for all children and adults, frankly. And in this storybook Bible, this is what Sally writes in her interpretation of Genesis 9. There in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't too long before everything went wrong again, but God was not surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan, not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people, his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at us. It was pointing up into the very heart of heaven. So that's something about three themes, the storm, the oath, and the token. Now let me... uh, 
address these themes as they relate to us. The God of the storm. We have to square at some point with the God of the storm and not ignore this. I have a friend who's actively exploring religion and has shifted from atheism to agnosticism. Good choice. You know, he's moving and it's good. And I said, so what's holding you back? And he said, well, I just haven't found a God who is palatable enough for me. Okay, a little taxonomy. On the one hand, I, you know, I hear it. I hear him, and, and we know that the God of Scripture, the God even as revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the locus of divinity, can be woefully misrepresented by even well-intentioned Christians, thereby creating a false view of God. That's true. On the other hand, I think that comment, I'm, I haven't yet found a God who is palatable enough for me, is the most egotistical and satanic thing a human being could ever mutter. Uh, why do I say that? Who do we think we are? I mean, holy crap! <laughs> Not only must I contort and manipulate everybody in my life around my own personality and drives and needs... And not only must I do that with the rest of creation so that I am satiated and satisfied, I will do that to God. God is only acceptable once he becomes acceptable to me. It's a terrifying thing to think, let alone to say. There was this great Onion article. And you know the Onion is like the more secularized version of the Babylon Bee. Or the Babylon Bee is the more sanctified version of the Onion or whatever. But the Onion is sort of a quasi-humorous you know, humorous news site. And they had this great... Uh, televised interview of an atheist who was interviewing God. Maybe you've seen it. I recommend it. Anyway, so the atheist is being very, very smug in the interview, holding a microphone to the open air, saying, well, God, why don't you answer me? Thinking that nobody's going to answer him back. Well, what's funny is God appears as a burst of light and completely vaporizes the atheist, who turns into a bloody skeleton and falls to the ground, and then the camera breaks and shatters, and then that's it. That's it. I mean, the whole interview lasts about five seconds. It's fantastic. But the point is, the point is, in his little Indiana Jones moment, that uh, that God... The maker and creator of all things, or to quote our liturgy tonight, the maker of all things, the judge of all men, has the absolute prerogative as the maker and judge to say no, or to say no more, or to say I'm unmaking this. He has absolute right and authority to do that, to be displeased with a world filled with anti-human and anti-God sentiment and drives. Absolutely. Moreover, whether we like divine wrath or not, find it palatable or not, it doesn't matter. I don't know how to say this nicely, but our beliefs don't matter that much. If they don't correspond with truth, we can believe all sorts of things. It's irrelevant. The only question is what actually is true. And if wrath is true, and it is, and thank God that it is, we have to square with it at some point. And I'm glad that it's true, because it means that evil has no future. It's very good, by the way, to have a just center. It is very good to have eyes of scrutiny. It is very good that somebody cares about the 18,000 daggers that dangle out of your back that people have put there over the last 40 years. It's good that somebody cares about that and the, the, that God, the infinite, is very interested in not only pulling those daggers out, but dealing with those who put them there in the first place. If God doesn't care about those things, he's not just, not holy, and not worthy of being worshipped. But he does. Now, of course, the problem with that is that we're not just people who have daggers sticking out of our backs. We are people with daggers in our hands that are ready to stab a few people, too. 
And so we are all caught red-handed. But I think we have to deal with this at some point, because while the water flood is over forever, a fire flood is coming, at least according to Second Peter 3, a verse that I wish wasn't in the Bible, but it is, and it, write, and it reads this way, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and then the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. What does this mean? Well, it's a Lenten reminder that an unmediated heaven is a lethal threat. God's countenance, the one upon which Moses could not look and live, unmakes dishonesty and dissembling. And if God's countenance unmakes dishonesty and dissembling, it unmakes us. The author of Hebrews is sober and right when he says that outside of a loving mediation, it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. That is simply the biblical message, and there's no avoiding it. So that's the God of the storm with whom we have to deal. But there's also the God of the oath. The God of Genesis 9 is a vowing, promising, pledging, contracting, covenanting God. And notice we as Christians on this side of the cross have a much better oath than Noah received. We have a new covenant that does not, in fact, punish sinners in their sin, but haphazardly forgives it through the mediation of a punished Christ. Somebody did pay the penalty. It just wasn't you. And so God's new oath is this. And it's all good. And it's all grace. Dangerous generosity. But it's this. You're mine. I've redeemed you. Not a hair on your head will ever be singed. You will never fall under condemnation. You will not drown in sin or judgment. You belong to me forever. And faith, faith is not some nebulous sort of sense that we get once in a while. Faith means that you believe the oath, that you say yes to the oath of heaven, that the covenant speaks for you, that the new covenant words of Jesus Christ mean something to you and that you've latched on to them and that you trust them. And that means that we oppose the satanic impulses and toxicity of the world and of ourselves because the old serpent of Eden was the first one who taught us cynicism, skepticism, scrutiny, squinted eyes. He taught us to distrust the word, distrust the vow, distrust the covenant, distrust the oath. First words he muttered, did God really say? Well, yes, and that's why we say the creed tonight, because we are professing that God, in fact, did say. And when we say the creed, it is an attack not only upon the principalities and powers of the world, it is an attack upon the fallen, unbelieving portion of us that just can't grapple with the grace of a new covenant. But he is the God of the oath who has pronounced a word over you, and that word stands regardless of how well we cling to it. It stands. So whether you have a tepid, garage sale faith tonight, or your faith is a Camelot, beautiful, decorative, impenetrable, doesn't matter. It's the ground upon which your faith rests that matters, and that ground is the oath that comes from God. Lastly, we have a God of the token. You know, there's lots of symbols in the Noah story that have affected Christianity. For example, the ark itself. Most of the the older church buildings, in fact, were shaped like an upside-down ark on purpose. That's why the room in which you're all meeting, not us up here, the magic people, we're in the chancel, but you're in what's called the nave, right? You're in the nave. That's shipping lingo. Um, and, and this is why, by the way, Cranmer in his baptismal liturgy for babies says, welcome. You have now been placed in the ark of Christ's church, right? So now you're in the boat, you're in the family. That means that you're not going to drown. You'll be all right. 
there's a sign that's given to us in the new covenant that's better than the boat, better than the rainbow, which is beautiful but intangible and out of our reach in the sky. No, instead, tonight God made you dinner, like a dinner that costs like, you know, $40 trillion, a dinner that costs all the currency of heaven, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. That is taking the most sacred thing and bringing it a lot nearer than a bow in the sky bringing it close to you to say that love is tangible. Love is real. Love is not a concept. Love is not just an idea. Love is flesh and blood. Love is a heartbeat. Love is a nervous system. Love is somebody who says, I'll stop breathing for you. Well, that's what you have tonight in this meal. It's as if Jesus Christ is standing here in all of his pain and in all of his love saying to each of us, this is my token. I'm the one who felt the storm. I'm the one who drowned in the deluge of a righteous wrath. And now, because of that, there is no more wrath for you. There's just none left in the system. Not one drop. No more storms for you, just a rainbow in the sky. And the red tones in its color spectrum are dazzlingly pronounced. Amen. Three at last, they took your life. They could not.